Welcome to Walk the Tech Talk, a podcast with host Anna Frazetto, Chief Digital Technology Officer and President of Technology Solutions at Harvey Nash, a global professional services company. On Walk the Tech Talk, Anna interviews technology leaders from across the globe and discusses how and where they are making big impacts on their industries. On this episode of Walk the Tech Talk, Anna interviews Mary N. Cheney, a multi-talented attorney and cybersecurity expert. A former FBI agent, Mary brings unique experience and perspective as a highly sought-after legal and cybersecurity consultant. Mary shares her insights into some of today's most pressing technology issues, including everything from data privacy and protection to business continuity to incident threat and response. She and Anna discuss the biggest security risk to organizations today, how those threats can be mitigated, as well as how the cybersecurity landscape has changed over the past decade. In addition, Mary touches on her fascinating career path that started with a Commodore 64 in her early techie days, her viewpoint on diversity in the industry, and her advice to young women looking to follow in her footsteps. Join Anna and learn from the strategies and accomplishments of this episode's Tech Trailblazer. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Walk the Tech Talk, where we take time to slow down for a few minutes and get to know fascinating professionals who are making big differences and advances in the tech sector. My guest today is attorney and cybersecurity expert, Mary Ann Cheney. I had the pleasure of meeting the multi-talented and brilliant Mary on an ARA panel a few months ago, where we spoke on issues facing women in technology in particular. Uh, From that moment, the conversation began back in October. I knew I had to have Mary on Walk the Tech Talk because of the unique experience and perspective she has on the technology industry. Mary's a former FBI agent and highly sought after legal and cybersecurity consultant. Mary is on the front lines of many of today's most pressing technology issues from privacy and data protection to business continuity and incident and threat response. Mary, welcome to the show. I am so glad to have you here. Oh, well, thank you so much, Anna. It's my pleasure to be here. It's been a few months since I last saw you, and the world has seen plenty of turmoil in that time. I would love to get your broad insights right now on the state of cybersecurity in particular right now in the U.S. and around the world. How are we doing, and what has your antenna up? (laughs) It's funny. I was thinking about that question, and, you know, I, I... Gone are the days that I ran a security operations center, right? So gone are the days where I actually knew the malware variants and the variants of ransomware and, and the technical side of everything. What what I see right now in working with my clients is really not even threats from a traditional cybersecurity threat like network intrusion or things like that. It's it's things like business email compromise or things like ransomware or things like, you know, still phishing and, and user user awareness and things like that. One of the things that's really intriguing to me is the attack uh, landscape right now and how the attackers are now attacking service providers. So your managed software uh, service providers are now targeted and with these ransomware threats. So essentially all that means 
things is, if, or even let's just take the state of Texas. The state of Texas had a bunch of counties that were hit uh, last year with ransomware. And what it was, it was the actual service provider that was providing them with a particular piece of software that was hit, not the actual individual counties. So you're seeing more bang for your buck. I just saw another e-discovery vendor called Epic that was hit and with ransomware. And Epic has, I mean, 80 offices around the globe, right? And e-discovery, of course, is what you do in litigation. You you electronic documents and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what's, what's more likely, Epic paying the ransom or the law practice paying the ransom? If Epic has all the law firm's information, they're, you know, they're, they're more pressed to try to make that payment and things like that. So some of the stuff that's out there are, are, you know, that at least from my purview right now, it's not the traditional, what I grew up on, so to speak. It's more so these, uh, what I would call nuisances. (laughs) Right. So, so what does a service provider, you know, what can they do to protect themselves? And also as, I mean, obviously, you know, not to date myself, we were kind of joking about this before uh, the call started, but I mean, I remember way back when where everything was locked down. So the idea that you could access social media from work, that was unheard of. Like that, that, that didn't even exist, right? So, but now social media is actually used, you know, for, for work. I, I know we're in the recruitment business, for example, that's one of our business lines and that's how we attract talent and we use social media in that regard. Uh, same thing with our, you know, offshoring services. So how do you, you know, how do you protect yourself? Well, you know what? I mean, you you asked a really interesting question, and it's no different than it's always been. It's hygiene. So what happens many times with an IT provider, especially an IT security provider, their hygiene is even worse because they assume that they know the technology and they know better, right? And so they won't get attacked. I mean, the answer to the ransomware issue has always been offline backups. That's the only answer, and that's a hygiene issue. That's not a, you know, that that's going way back when, way back when, when I began in this space, back with the FBI, we, we started talking about basic business continuity, disaster recovery type of principles. And backups were one of those things that, yeah, of course you have to have those. And so what's happening as people are moving to the cloud or they, they have these hybrid instances and, and they're moving further away from their traditional lockdown approach where they and so the endpoint is moving. So, you know, you have your cell phone, so you have mobile fishing and things like that. And so you have all of these threats that are out there that are now interconnected because of how we actually interact with the internet now. I think that depending on the organization, depending on the actual industry that you're working in, it you know, banking is more mature, for instance, than even healthcare. And healthcare shouldn't be as bad as it is because it's been out there for a while. So it's basic hygiene type of issues that are tripping people up, even on larger enterprises all the way down the small business. Right. Well, thank you, Mary, for those insights. Now, I would love to hear about your path into the world of high tech and cybersecurity. Uh, So now, were you a kid who loved spy novels? (laughs) Or were you an amateur hacker, if you're allowed to say? How did you find your way into this very cool and very important IT specialization? 
Well, you know what? I grew up in the humble means, so I didn't really have a lot of technology in front of me. I think the, and I was thinking about this and I laughed because I'm going to date myself and I don't have a problem with dating myself. I think my <laughs> first, you know, what? one of the things that I did often ask my parents for were technology. So I had an Intellivision. I did, and I think I, I, I think I had an Intellivision and an Atari. And then I had a Commodore 64, right? Oh. So I always loved technology. I was always a math and science person. Um, and then and in high school, my vocation, when, when you had to select what track you wanted to go, and, and it was programming. So I went into programming, and then from there went into, I, I, got, I, have, I have my bachelor's in uh, information systems from uh, Xavier University, Cincinnati, Ohio. And then after IT, or after deciding that I didn't want to program the rest of my life, I felt like I was a little bit more social than that. I used the other side of my brain, and I left undergrad and went to law school a couple years later, and came to Texas and graduated from Thurgood Marshall School of Law, and the FBI came to our school, at law school, recruiting. And so I entered into the FBI, and they put me in cybercrime. So they put me in my love, right? So I was investigating the very things that I used to play around with. And the, the fact that I had a programming background, you know, I, I COBOL and all that other stuff that I used to do, it, it helped me in trying to investigate. Now, back then, I entered in the FBI. 18 years ago, uh, 2002, and um, we were doing denial of service attacks cases. I did some auction fraud cases. Auction fraud was really big back then with eBay, and did some you know internal threat cases where employees were acting badly. So I mean, it, the love of, the love affair of cybersecurity and privacy started just when I was little, and it just kept going. So each time, even after I left the FBI, I went to director of incident response and doing security operations in the corporate realm. And even now, as having my own cybersecurity and privacy law practice, I, it's just another side of the brain that I'm using to uh, do what I love to do. Oh, my goodness. I love that. So now you've worked in cybersecurity, as you're talking about, right, for a long time, including time as an FBI agent. And you built your own cyber and legal consulting firm, as you mentioned, uh, which is known as the Cybersecurity Law Firm of Texas, which I absolutely love that. Now, in your experience, how has the work of cybersecurity changed over the years? What has driven those changes? I know we were talking a little bit about hygiene at the at the beginning of the podcast, but what do you think has, has really kind of changed? over the years? Well, the difference between way back when and now, I guess the biggest difference is uh, regulations. And so what was happening, and, and I... <laughs> Way back when, when I first started my first consulting firm in 2008, I, HIPAA was starting to apply to business associates. So that regulation really drove a lot of the cybersecurity controls that people were putting in place because people were thinking about compliance. Well, compliance checks are not necessarily the, the be-all to end-all. You don't just do stuff for compliance purposes, but that usually is what drives people. So what you're seeing right now and, and what I'm seeing right now is with, with the California Consumer Privacy Act, with GDPR, with, you know, New Jersey now looking into it, New York, Texas, all of these states are looking into the legislation to control the data. And that's all it's ever been about. It's about how you protect individuals' data, personally identifiable information. And so I think 
when I first started and when I was in the FBI, we never lost sight of the data because we couldn't build a building if we didn't know what kind of data that was going to be uh, transmitted in that building, whether it's unclassified, classified, or above, right? So from my perspective, the privacy and cybersecurity piece were married in the FBI with physical security and everything else. And it all focused on what you're going to do with that data. When I got out into corporate America, they started to divorce those things. They started to put compliance had a, had a piece, IT had a piece, legal had a piece, physical security usually sat in a different bucket. And so there wasn't a holistic strategy about how to protect data. And now, now what you're seeing is because of all these breaches, privacy legislation is starting to be enacted. And what happens really is that these privacy legislation says, thou shall protect consumer data. Well, <laughs> it's only a breach if it's electronic data. So now sure. that's cybersecurity, right? <laughs> so it becomes a, what does your cybersecurity look like? What are you doing to live up to the responsibility of protection of that data? So for me, it ebbs and flows and Right now, what seems to be driving a lot of activity is the, the privacy laws that are that are being enacted across the country. Right. Great point. Now, I have to, you know, just to kind of sidetrack a little bit, it's an election year, right? So, of course, <laughs> we had so much, right, uh, the discussion around 2016 where it was voting tampered with, were the Russians involved, and all of this stuff about data, you know, Facebook and, you know, what. <laughs> Who else was involved? Who had the hand in the pot? With it being 2020 and another election year, do you see or have you heard of of certain parameters being put in place to kind of help prevent some of the items that were discussed that threatened us during 2016 from an election perspective? Oh, that's a good question. So (laughs) the problem is government, right? And the problem is even, even, for instance, when I went in the midterms on Super Tuesday, and I'm looking at the individual places that you can go and you can, you know, cast your vote, and I'm looking at them, and the responsibility is broken down by county. So then you start to think, okay, so if there's a cybersecurity shortage, you know, how many really good cybersecurity people are working for the county? <laughs> and so right. the, when we start talking about election hacking from a device perspective, many of the counties counties don't want to admit if they have a problem, many of them don't want to say they have a problem. So they're and they're not looking for help. The federal government has implemented things from a state level to be able to help states identify any type of tampering from that perspective. But then it becomes how does it filter down in those into those individual counties that are really responsible for their own, you know, electoral votes, right? So it, it's just the disinformation stuff. It's just because we're easily manipulated. Based on social media. Uh, right, so I don't right. see that changing. But what we can do is be better at communicating, you know, throughout the states in regards of what's going on, because there was the FBI, I think, had um, information. and I can't remember if it was Georgia or North Carolina, but they had intelligence that they were under attack or they were there were phishing attempts, but they, there was no vehicle by which to communicate that. And I think we're doing better to communicate it. Now, whether we're doing better to stop it, if it happens, that's another thing. And that that's where the breakdown happens between county and state. 
Right, and that's such a great point because I have to say with all the, you know, material and information and reporting on the particular subject, I don't think anybody has really drilled down to the county level as you explained it, uh, which I think is such a, such a great point in the sense at the county level, are you going to have the same level of cybersecurity that you would have at the federal or even at the state level? So definitely worth making everyone aware. And then, of course, you know, it comes down to communication is key. Now, just your point on social media, I'm seeing how the social media is impacting, you know, the whole coronavirus, right? Because you, you get people that get little headlines and little bursts of information, and then it's creating this panic as opposed to really reading all the material that's available out there and not just relying on, you know, whatever you see posted on, on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram <laughs> or Snapchat or anything like that. So, yeah, it goes down to... Characters. <laughs> Exactly, exactly, exactly. So now, what advice do you find you and your team are most often giving to business leaders and owners who are worried about business continuity and protecting their data? Well, I think it's hygiene, right? And it, business continuity, when they when they talk about that and what, what I thought about when reading that question was more about ransomware and, and being able to respond or resiliency or build in that resiliency. And I find a lot of a lot of the folks that I'm I'm trying to counsel is to get off this belief that just because it's in the cloud it's covered. Because sure. it, it it well what does the contract say? And and you should see the blank stares I get when I say, Well what how do you have have a service level agreement which says with Amazon or Azure or any flavor of cloud service that you want that they have to have you back up in a certain amount of time. Are you, have you even tried to cut over to a backup in the cloud? So what happens if it goes away? And I get blank stares. And so it becomes a, I think many people or even the businesses that I talk to are relying on service providers that they can't rely on because if they're not paying extra for those services, they can't necessarily rely on that being available to them. So I think people are like, oh, well, it's not my problem as long as I move it all to the cloud. And, you know, one of the things that I'm telling them, I'm like, okay, so if the managed service providers are being under, are under attack and your managed service provider now goes away, what is your plan from a business continuity perspective? And it's like, um, and so it, it, we start to ask these questions about encryption levels. We start to ask, and, and people are just making assumptions as opposed to what you just pointed out, reading the fine print, right? Instead of reading and, and understanding and grasping what their risk exposure may be, they're just making assumptions. And then Mary sure. comes and says, are you sure about that? <laughs> so. All right. No, and, and, you know, and the same applies with, you know, out, any outsourced services. If you're relying on, you know, not not just from a, a data and cloud uh, perspective, but if you have work that's being done offshore, what's the business continuity and what's protecting your data if your data is overseas? So all very valid uh, concerns. Yeah, and and even, even so, what does the contract say? Because there is not a contract you can sign today, especially if you do work with the government or a large corporate corporations that don't have cybersecurity privacy requirements in them. And some of them get really detailed about what you're supposed to have in place. And a lot of companies, especially small and mid-sized businesses, just sign those contracts. Well, just for instance, you know, you have DFARS that's, that they're now going to start auditing small businesses that uh, do business with the federal government, right? If you're a defense contractor and, you know, you, you've signed that document saying you have all of these things in place and you really didn't, you just signed it, now they're going to come start auditing you 
you on those things. And now you can lose your government contract. So it, it's oh. really interesting what's going on out there. Sure. So now let, let's kind of change a, a little bit uh, the tone of what we've been talking about. So now we know uh, women are the minority in the tech sector, right? <laughs> no surprise there. Women of color even more so. You have also established a nonprofit to focus on this issue called Minorities in Cybersecurity. Now, when we look at this narrow segment of the tech industry, cybersecurity, how are women of color and women in general faring? It's still a challenge. And with minorities in cybersecurity, we are trying to... Okay, so the problem is, it's a challenge because we get into the field itself and then we get lost. And sometimes we get disheartened, frustrated, and then we leave. And so what I saw when I created Minorities in Cybersecurity, I, this was a two-year process, right? So I, have, I had accumulated up to about 30 uh, young men and women mentees. And what we would talk about were not certifications, were not, you know, college degrees or what do you, from an education perspective, because usually minorities and women are the more educated because we are trying to overcompensate for, because we feel like we have to do all of this stuff to get in to begin with. And, but what we were talking about were leadership types of things. How do you deal with a challenging culture? How do you develop the necessary leadership skills that you need? How do you get the right training that you need to build your career? And so I created Minorities in Cybersecurity to be a community, to be a, to try to build those next leaders, to try to keep minorities, women in this field because the talent pipeline when, you know, is, is still, you know, there's still a lot of jobs out there to be had. And so if you want individuals to consider cybersecurity, you have to make it into a welcome type of environment. And traditionally, it's not been. And just mainly because of, you know, of it being male dominated and even, you know, the marketing around hackers and things like that, we can get into all of that. But I mean, we're not faring really well that the numbers aren't good and haven't been good for a while. I think I saw something all the way up to 20%. But I, I argue those metrics mainly because they were, if you look, if you read, <laughs> you read the fine print, they were including uh, women and minorities in the mix that may have only 10% of their job function in cybersecurity. And I said, uh, you can't get a true stat if it's not 50% or more of their job function. So they reduced the percentage to get the number up. So if you actually go back and look at the percentage of women in the field that do this day in and day out, either 50% or more, the number still is around 11%. Wow. And finally, I, I think I would love to talk about the favorite advice you give to young women who want to follow in your footsteps, do cool things in technology or in law. You know, what are the lessons and guidance that you can share? Oh, there's a bunch of that. and that, We do that <laughs> in, <laughs> in minorities in cybersecurity. They can get a whole bunch of that. It, if anything, I've always lived my life asking the question, why not me? I mean, the only thing that, and this is what I tell 
folks, uh, young men and women, I said, you know, the only thing standing in your way of what you want to do is your mental attitude and determination. And so, you know, knowledge is just one barrier. You can get more knowledge, but you just have to keep looking and ask the right people for the knowledge aspect of it. But no one is going to drive you. You got to drive yourself. And so if, if you get discouraged easily, find a way not to get discouraged. If you, you know, if you're trying to get into this field or if you're in this field and you're frustrated, then figure out something else or figure out a different way or maybe you're not happy with what you're doing, you know, don't ever give up on your dreams. So that's one of the, the more important key takeaways is mental toughness and determination, I think. Absolutely, because that really does a number on your confidence, right, if you don't have that right mindset. Right. So uh, clearly a, an important ingredient, I think, for everybody out there who's young and starting off in their careers. Mary, I really wanted to thank you so much uh, for uh, doing this today. I I am sure there's going to be listeners that are going to want to get in touch with you. So what is the best contact information? Oh, you can find me on LinkedIn under my name. Use my middle initial, which is N, Mary N. Cheney. You could find me at mnchaneylaw.com, which is my law firm uh, website. You can find me at www.mincybsec.org, which is minoritiesandcybersecurity.org. You can find me there. I mean, I can be found on Twitter at Mary Ann Cheney with my initials. I can be found on Facebook, MN Cheney Law. So there you have it. (laughs) That's awesome. Thank you so much, Mary. Oh, no problem. Thank you so much, Anna, for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Walk the Tech Talk. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to keep up to date with Walk the Tech Talk, please subscribe by heading over to your iTunes app. While you're there, please rate the podcast and let us know what you like the most about it in the review section. Thank you and happy listening.